Ready whenever? Parenting is a job where a big human tries to teach a little human lessons that the little human typically doesn't want to learn. Have you ever tried to potty train a child? Most of them just aren't that interested. Or tried to teach a child how to eat with a fork when they're used to you feeding them or using their hands and in their mind it has been working just fine. That's what parenting is. It's a big human trying to teach a little human lessons they really don't want to learn. You're also realizing that you're teaching little humans to do tasks they're just not going to be very good at, right? at least at first and, and maybe ever. They're just not going to pick up on this very quickly and you're going to have to teach them over and over Again, and it doesn't get better the older they get. As a matter of fact, the older they get, they feel like they don't even need the parent to teach them because they're smart enough, they already know, they could probably do this better without the parent's help. Uh, If you have ever taught a child to drive, you know what I'm talking about. I have never heard the story where a parent is in the process of teaching their child to drive, and the parent says, you know what, everything's going perfectly. Everything I tell them to do, they do it. They're so happy to have my instruction. They're so happy that I tell them what to do. I give them instruction, and immediately they say, thank you, Father, for such wise counsel on how to operate a vehicle. I have never heard a parent say that was their experience in teaching their child to drive. I, I've, I've also never heard a parent say, you know what, we went to get their license and now that they have their license and they can drive on their own, I am completely confident that they have learned all the lessons they needed to learn. They listened to me the whole time. They learned all the lessons. I have no concerns about them driving. I've never heard a parent say that. That's what parenting is. It's big humans trying to teach little humans how to do tasks that the little humans don't want to do or they don't think the parent is a really good teacher. We were all kids. We were all teenagers at one time. So I'm not picking on kids or teenagers today. We were all there. We all felt the same way. We all resisted what our parents were trying to teach us. Now, it's one thing to try to teach your child to mow the grass or rake the leaves or even drive a car. It would be completely different. If you came to your 13-year-old one day and and you said, this is the checkbook, you would have to explain what a checkbook is to the 13-year-old. This is the checkbook, or this is our online checking account. Here are all the bills that we have to pay every month to make our household run. I'm going to go away for a couple of months, maybe a year. I'm going to go away on a trip. And you, as the 13-year-old, you're going to be in charge of running the household until I return. If you did that, parents, there would be no reason to ever return. Because nothing would be left by the time that you got back. Apologies to the 13-year-olds who are listening. But you just wouldn't hand over your household to your kids. Uh, Jesus, 
is foreshadowed. He's predicted all throughout the Old Testament. A Messiah is going to come. A Savior is going to come. And then Jesus appears. God comes in the flesh. And last weekend, we celebrated Easter and His death and His resurrection for all of us. Then Jesus gets ready to go back to heaven. He gets ready to leave, and he has to hand off the mission. He has to hand off the task to somebody because he's no longer going to be here. This is what happens in Acts chapter 1. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus was eating with the disciples. Jesus gave the disciples this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After He said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid Him from their sight. So Jesus has come, He's lived, He's taught, He's died, He rose again. And now he's getting ready to go back to the Father, and he hands off the mission and ministry of his kingdom to the disciples. Now, if you've read anything about the disciples, if you've read any of the Gospels, you will know that these were not overly bright people. They were were not overly trustworthy people. They weren't have your back. You can depend on these 11 guys. That's just not who they were. When you read their stories and and even their interactions with Jesus, they don't exactly inspire confidence. Even their final question, maybe maybe you saw it just a minute ago, their final question of, of Jesus lets us know they still don't get it. They're still asking the exact same question they had asked Jesus a hundred times, and Jesus had answered a hundred times, and it went something like this. Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to give us the power back? Are you going to kick the Romans out? Are you going to bring your kingdom into this world? And and if you've read the, the Gospels, you know, That question was usually followed by this question. And can we have really good seats when that happens? Can we have power? Can we be in the cabinet? Can we be an ambassador? They're asking the same bad question they've been asking for three straight years. Jesus, think about this. In Acts chapter 1... Jesus is handing the mission of the kingdom of God over to people who still don't understand the mission. They still don't understand everything that Jesus was trying to accomplish. But Jesus is leaving and he turns to these guys and says, you got to take it from here. Now when they ask this, this bad question of Jesus, he tries to really quickly clarify a couple of things from their Question, and and, and one of those is they need to stop obsessing over the time. Stop obsessing over time. The the disciples ask, is this the time? 
when your kingdom's going to come to earth? They've been asking that question over and over. Is this the big one, Jesus? Is this, is this when it all wraps up? Is this when it all happens? And, and people for 2,000 years since this moment, they've been asking that same question. Is this the big one? Is this the one that counts? Is this the end times? Is, is this the big moment, Jesus? Is everything about to happen now? And Jesus' answer is always the same. You're not going to know when that time comes. You're not going to know if this is the big one. And it doesn't matter if this is the big one. You need to be ready and you need to be a part of the mission. If you're fulfilling the mission, you won't have to worry about when the big one is. You won't have to keep asking about that. Stop obsessing over, is this the one? Is this the one the Bible talked about? Is this the one when everything is going to end? Just plug into the mission of God. Another correction Jesus has to make. He says essentially, stop asking if we're going to go back. Stop asking if we're going to rewind to some former time. They use the word restore. Jesus, is this the time, is this the big one, where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We're going to go back to the way it was when we had power we had our sovereignty when we are we going to go back the problem and if you've been with us for this study you'll you'll know this going back is not such a good idea because times weren't so great in the past and israel had come out of exile israel had had some really bad leaders they had some really terrible moments going back wasn't a great idea You know, I'm glad that God gives us memories. I'm glad that God allows us to reminisce, to to think about our past, to, to hold on to good memories. And we have a tendency in our memories to exaggerate or to romanticize just a little bit. And, and I think that's a good thing. When you reflect on your past, you want to remember the good things. You, you, you want to remember the good moments. But we also sometimes in our memories, we edit out the struggles or the difficulties. The, the past looks so much better to us as we look back. Oh, that was such a better time. We say that sometimes. That was such a better time. Things were so much better. Things were so much easier. And maybe they were, or, or maybe we've just chosen to forget the struggles. The disciples want to go back to a time that, well, it wasn't always that great. And, and if we're not careful, we can have that same tendency. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, we're not going back to some other time. We're not replaying the last chapter. I'm trying to create a new chapter is what Jesus was saying to them. I'm leading you into the future. You're about to see things you've never seen before. You're about to experience things you've never experienced before. The Holy Spirit was coming to the earth in fullness. He was going to be in every believer. He was going to reside with the people of God. They were going to have power because of the Holy Spirit. Incredible things were about to happen. Jesus wasn't going back. He was trying to get them to move forward. Side note, just briefly. We're all, to one degree or another, anxious for things to get back to normal. We're we're all anxious. We're we're in a hurry for things to go back to the way 
they were. And, and, and I'm the same way. There, there are a lot of things about the way things were I really miss. One of the main ones is being able to see you, be able to see your faces and be together physically in one place, worshiping together and laughing together and telling stories together. I miss that. I'm ready for it to go back to normal. But we should proactively consider what we want to go back to and what we want to move on from. As we're in this interesting time. We really need to consider, do we just want to go back? Do we just want to do the same thing we did before? Or or, or do we really need to think about, what do we want to go back to? The good things that we want to keep, but, but maybe what do we want to move on from that used to be in our lives that maybe wasn't that beneficial, maybe needs to be changed. We have a unique opportunity that not, not many people have experienced. We have a unique opportunity where there's been a pause in our life. A lot of things have stopped or changed. We get the opportunity before we rush back to normal. We have an opportunity to ask, what, I, what do I want to carry into the future? And what do I want to leave behind? Some of us are praying, God, just let it go back to normal. And, and maybe God is saying... I don't want everything to go back to normal. I I have something new for the future. Maybe God doesn't want our relationships to be exactly the way they were before. Maybe God doesn't, doesn't want our family life to be exactly the way it was before. Maybe God doesn't want our calendar to look exactly the way it looked before. Maybe God doesn't want our spiritual life just to go right back to the way it used to be. I think there's aspects of the season that we're in that give us the perfect opportunity to decide the future's not going to look exactly like the past. I'm going to allow God to lead me into a new future. Well, that's one of the things Jesus had to deal with with his disciples. We're not going back. We're not restoring something. We're building something brand new with our future. The third thing Jesus had to address was he had to say, stop thinking everything is just about you. Stop thinking everything is just about you. Stop, stop trying to go to the past, but stop thinking this is all about you. The, the disciples' question was, uh, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel, to us, to our people, to people who look like us and think like us and talk like us? To, uh, they come from the same culture as us. And Jesus immediately says, everything's not about you and your people. Jesus reveals in this moment that his kingdom is really a multi-ethnic kingdom and a, and a multicultural kingdom and a multilingual kingdom. It's, it's not going to, to be bound by borders of culture or language or ethnicity or geography. Jesus was leading the disciples into a time where the gospel was going to explode all over the world, into all of the cultures, into all of the ethnic groups, all around the world, the gospel was going to begin to spread in a way 
that it had not spread up into that point. They were about to see something bigger than they could ever imagine. And Jesus said, in order to accomplish this, you're going to have to be my witnesses. You're going to have to represent me, Jesus tells his disciples. You're going to have to reflect who I am and what I've done. You're going to have to be me in the world because I'm not going to be here anymore. You're going to have to carry out the mission. Now, they were ill-equipped for that. They didn't have the skills for that. So Jesus said, you're not going to be alone in this mission. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus sends his spirit to give them power, to give them strength, to give, give them wisdom. But not only the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives them each other. Because in Acts chapter 2, the church is birthed. God's plan is revealed and that he's going to put people together in groups to advance the mission of God. If you think about the Old Testament, way back at the beginning of human history, God has always chosen to work through a people. Right? That's, that's what he called Israel. They're God's people. A group of people that God was demonstrating his power and his grace and his love and his mission through. On the other side of Jesus, on the other side of the cross, the people that God is going to work through is going to be the church. It's going to be people gathered together. The big C church, all believers everywhere, but also the little C church, local churches all over the the, the, the area began to spring up, began to be birthed as God's people came together, realizing none of us can accomplish the mission on our own. None of us can expand the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus by ourselves. We are much more effective as we come together in the church to advance the mission of God. And so churches begin to spring up all over the New Testament. The majority of the New Testament are letters written to churches or to church leaders encouraging them because the mission of God was going to be carried out through the church. And, and some of those churches were big and some of those churches were small. And some of those churches met in buildings and some of those churches met, met in homes. But the church becomes the primary avenue through which God accomplishes His mission in the world. Think of it this way. The vehicle through which God accomplishes his mission in the world is the local church. And yes, individuals respond to God through faith, right? God calls individuals. I'm fine if, if you think of your relationship with God as a personal relationship with God. There is a personal nature to our relationship with God, my response to God. But as God is accomplishing His mission of expanding the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus all around the world, He calls us into that mission. He, he asks the church to be in that Mission And when you read the Bible, you find out there's not another plan. There's not a plan B. This is the plan of God for expanding the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The plan of God is the church 
And there's no other plan. We have to be the witnesses of God. We have to reflect Jesus to the world. We have to speak as Jesus would speak if he were still here. Because we're his witnesses. We're, we're on the mission that Jesus started and left with us. We have to speak words that Jesus would speak. We have to show compassion in the way that Jesus would show compassion. We have to be the people that Jesus would be if he were here. We have to interact with other people in the way that Jesus would interact with other people if he were here. We are the witness. We are the reflection. Think of this. In the Old Testament... The nation of Israel is the foreshadowing of Jesus. All of the symbolism, all pointing towards Jesus, the priests and the kings and and the sacrifices and the law that we talked about, all of that's foreshadowing. It's pointing towards Jesus. In the New Testament, the church is the reflection of Jesus. Jesus has come. We know what he was like. We know what he taught. We know what he said. We know how he loved and showed compassion to other people. We we know how he cared for the poor and the marginalized and those who are in need. We know what Jesus was like now. We've seen it. We've read about it. We've experienced it. Our part in the mission is to reflect that as God's people in this world. We, We are to be the reflection of Jesus In Acts 1 and 2, Jesus hands this mission to a group of guys who were ill-equipped to carry it out. In Acts 2, he fills them with the Spirit of God to empower them and surrounds them with other people through the church and says, you are to carry out the mission of expanding the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus. And it's not an optional plan. It's not an option if you're a believer. We don't get to say yes to the person of Jesus and no to the mission of Jesus. It's not a la carte. I want a relationship with Jesus. I just don't want to be in the mission of Jesus. It's not an option. When we choose Jesus, we choose to enter into the mission of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus expanding around the world through His church. Now, if that's true, and it is, that Jesus handed the most important mission, the mission of the kingdom, to the church, and that being a part of this mission is not an option for believers in Jesus, if if we are the ones who are supposed to carry out the mission of Jesus, then we can pretty well count on challenges and obstacles to that. I mean, whatever vehicle Jesus chose to use to expand the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus, there would be attacks. And and because Jesus chose the church, then there's going to be obstacles for the church. We have an enemy. There is a devil who does not want the glory of God to be expanded. There is a devil who does not want... The gospel of Jesus to be expanded. So if we've been given that mission, we can count on obstacles. We can count on challenges. And if you've been in a church for very long, you know that churches have problems. And churches have struggles. And churches have difficulties. And and I can just tell you, it, it didn't start in 2020. 
It didn't start in our lifetime or our generation. When you rewind and you go all the way back to the New Testament, the first century church, you find a church filled with problems. You find a church filled with challenges. You, you, you find a, a church filled with conflict. Because the church is the vehicle for the mission of Jesus, and therefore it's going to come under the attack of the one who doesn't want that mission accomplished. Now, I was thinking about all of the New Testament church and all of the writings to the New Testament church and I was trying to think, what are the specific challenges we see again and again in the first century church? And here's a couple that I came up with. One is the challenge of unity. There's this constant challenge throughout the New Testament in the first century church of unity. There there was always struggles and and divisions and conflict. Even sometimes in the New Testament, Paul and others have to name names, right? They have to say, you two need to get along. You need to stop creating conflict. You need to stop creating discord and friction in the church, it, it didn't start in our lifetime. Look, if you've, if you've been in a church for very long, you, you've probably experienced conflict in a church. And maybe it, was, maybe it was conflict over a building, or maybe it was conflict over a decision, or conflict over leadership, or maybe it was uh, conflict over finances, or resources, or programming. Any number of conflicts. We've experienced those. And, and let's be honest. Some of those conflicts are, are due to bad decisions or, or they're, they're due to um, maybe moral failure or, or maybe some insecurity or weakness on the part of a, a leader or a person in the church. But bigger picture, the church experiences attacks at, on its unity because we are the vehicle for the mission of God. And the enemy wants to do whatever he can do to destroy our ability to carry out that mission. So you and I, as as part of the church, as part of God's mission, we have to fight for unity. We we have to struggle for unity. Paul says at one point, as much as it depends on you. Be at peace with everyone. As much as it depends on you, check your heart, check your motives, check your uh, your actions. Apologize when you need to. Seek forgiveness when you need to. But we have to keep fighting for the unity of the church because we are the vehicle for the mission of Jesus. Another ongoing challenge that I find in the, the first century churches of the New Testament, and that is the challenge of holding tightly to truth. You find this over and over again. Paul deals with it a lot. Paul says, look, you know the simple gospel of Jesus. Why are you starting to believe other things? You know who Jesus was. We have proclaimed to you Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, that grace comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. But Paul was constantly having to fight against people who kept telling the church, oh, but I've discovered something new. Oh, I've learned something new. There's more to it than just Jesus. Or people who were saying, you know what, you got to keep all these traditions. 
You got to do all these things we used to do in the church. You, you, you got to maintain all of these rituals that we used to carry out in the church. Paul is constantly having to challenge the first century church. Just believe Jesus. Just trust Jesus. Just follow Jesus. Just give your life to the Word of God as it's been revealed in the Scriptures. Just stay laser-focused on what God says is true. And don't get pulled away by all of these side issues and these side beliefs and these people who keep telling you, oh, there's more to it. Oh, I've discovered something new. Oh, I found something new about God. You have to believe this too. There was this ongoing struggle for the truth. We experience that same struggle today. We experience that same struggle as as people try to tell the church what we should believe and how we should act and what our convictions should be. Just like the first century church, you and I have to hold tightly to what's true in order to accomplish the mission of of Jesus. Another struggle that I find in the New Testament is that it's, it's the challenge of lethargy. The, the, the challenge of just getting tired. Just getting in a rut. We see this most clearly in Revelation 3 of the church at Laodicea. But you see it appear in other churches too as you read the New Testament. We just kind of settle into a rut uh, our spiritual life just, it, it takes on a quality of boredom. It's just the same thing again and again and again. That just, just a lethargy begins to set in that eventually makes our heart cold towards the mission. See, that's one of the consequences of lethargy. When we just sort of show up and, and go through the motions, we tend to forget that there's a world without Jesus that needs the good news that we know about. We tend to forget that all around us, in our families, the people we work with, in our communities, there are people who have not experienced the grace and the love of Jesus. Our heart just begins to grow cold to the need for Jesus in the world when we become lethargic, when, when our spiritual life becomes boring to us, when we stop fanning the flames, as Paul said at one point, fanning, fanning the flames of what Jesus has done in our hearts, just a lethargy. I think if, if you had to put one blanket over all of these challenges... I would call it the challenge of distractions. Distractions come in many forms. They come from many different directions. They, they disguise themselves in many different ways. Often they disguise themselves as something really, really important. Just distractions. And sometimes we get distracted by conflict in the church or we get distracted by teaching that's outside of God's word or we get distracted by lethargy or we get distracted by any number of things in the church. We get distracted by opinions and we get distracted by preferences. We get distracted by selfishness. We get distracted by materialism. We get distracted by comfort. 
From the very beginning of the church, the church has had to fight against distractions. But you and I, even though we may not feel equipped for it, you and I, as members of God's church, we have been handed the mission of Jesus to expand the glory of God, to expand the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the world that all may know, that all may experience the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. And so as God's church in the year 2020, we have to recommit ourselves personally and our church collectively to what God wants to do in us. Not just our agenda, not just our goals for the church where we attend. Jesus, what do you, what do you want us to be doing during this time? We're in this time of of pandemic, and, and we've had to shift everything, right? All of us have had to shift areas of our lives, and, and that includes the church. The one thing that has not stopped during this time is the mission of Jesus. You know, people still need to know Jesus. Our neighbors still need to know Jesus. Our family members still need to know Jesus. We're still to be a part of the mission of Jesus. And when this is over, whatever normal is going to look like, whatever the future is going to look like, one thing that will remain the same is the mission of Jesus. That he has engaged us to reflect Jesus in the world where we live. Let's be a part of the mission. Let's not get distracted by all of the things that want our attention. Let's come back to the simplicity that Jesus said in his final moments, you'll be my witness, you'll be me to the whole world, starting where you are and expanding to the whole world that as many people as possible would come to know and love the living God and his son, Jesus. It's really the only reason we're here. It's really the only reason we have church of any kind, whether it's online or physically present. It is the only reason the church exists. It's to expand the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus around the world. Let's never lose sight of that. Let's pray. God, it probably wouldn't have been our plan to turn and hand the mission of the kingdom of God to people who were ill-equipped, to people who would make mistakes and would fail. But you did. You gave us the mission of expanding the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus all around the world, and you did not give a plan B. You did not give another option And you did not give the possibility of opting out of that mission. For if we have named the name of Jesus, we must be a part of the mission that he left in the world. So I pray for our church. I pray for churches around our area, our state, our nation, around the globe. I pray that during this unusual time, 
that you would reignite in us a fire for what is most important, expanding God's glory and the message of hope that comes through Jesus to the whole world. However we have to do it, in person, by going there physically, online, however we have to accomplish it, God, help us to have a heart for the mission of God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.